Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. In recent years, UK stocks have lagged global markets. Unloved by investors and underweighted by institutions, is the UK really a bargain hiding in plain sight? I want to know what's holding British equities back, and if they're about to turn a corner. And in today's dumb question of the week, when a company goes private, are you forced to sell your shares? All right, let's get into it. So, Romin, I saw recently you did a video which was S&P 500 versus FTSE 100, and you caused uproar in the comments by plumping for the FTSE 100. What's going on? What are you doing? Well, I had to be honest, you know, I've gotten overweight and it's in UK stocks, although it's very small, to be fair. And it's because of valuations. I just think the UK looks very cheap at the moment. And I just thought, well, why not have a little punt on UK stocks? It's contrarian. <laughs> Foolish, some might call it. But look, I think the UK is so unloved. OK, it's got problems. I admit that. But, you know, we'll talk about that. But I think overall, if you look at the valuations in the UK, it's pricing in something pretty bad. And the reality isn't quite that bad. What's the definition of madness again? <laughs> I think this is the first UK overweight I've had for a long time. But to put this discussion in some context, the UK stock market has been struggling for really quite a long time now. If you go back a couple of decades, the UK accounted for around 8% of the MSCI All Country World Index. Today, that's less than 4%. And if you go back even further, I think if you go back to 1900, the proportion was even higher. I think it was about a quarter of global markets. Yeah, we've been on a long relative decline compared to other countries. But even in recent years, like if you look over the last decade, or at least since 2016, I don't know what happened then, but <laughs> the trend seems to have accelerated, right? So almost £50 billion has been withdrawn from UK equity funds by retail investors since 2016. And that's obviously impacted valuations. Yeah, I think there are lots of reasons for it. The outflows are definitely one of them. And the domestic market doesn't have much faith in the UK stock market. And I think there are also some institutional investors in the UK, which, for reasons which maybe aren't their fault, have divested from the UK. Are you talking about pension funds there? Because there's a specific issue, isn't there, around defined benefit pension funds and how they've basically had to sell all their equities over the last 20 years because of changes in legislation. So legislation came in bit by bit with the intention of making pensions safer, right? You'd match the liabilities that you have to pay to your retirees with the assets you have. And you do that with bonds. So if you go back to 1996, defined benefit funds had almost 80% of their assets in stocks and the majority of that UK stocks. And if you roll forward to today, they have less than 10% in UK stocks, a lot less than 10%. So this LDI approach, which actually I, I did quite a lot of work on, it, it's your fault. It's your fault. <laughs> it is my fault. Yeah, personally. <laughs> I think it has created a problem. Now, part of this is also due to an accounting change in 2000, which forced companies to recognise pension fund deficits on their balance sheets. And that means that if you do have something which is very volatile, well, you probably don't want it. And so having bonds perhaps would have reduced the volatility, although recent experience doesn't suggest that's true. But that certainly didn't help. We were in this situation where companies were perpetually having to put more money into their pension funds to top up the gap, right, as interest rates were falling. 
and bonds weren't delivering the returns they needed. That's kind of turned around now. So I think we're now in a situation for the first time in decades where defined benefit pension funds are actually in surplus and companies are flogging them off to insurance companies. So that could be good news for UK corporates. Now, I came across some research by Ondra, which was titled Britain PLC and Liquidation. And that laid out some facts which they thought are behind some of these big sell-offs that we've seen in the UK. And they describe it as a sort of self-reinforcing liquidation process. So the first stage is what we just discussed, pension funds and insurance companies selling their equity holdings. And they describe that as systemic capital leakage. Nice, I like that. (laughs) And then in the second stage, you've got reduced equity issuance for investment. M&A is absent. And that creates this kind of negative signaling effect. And then we have needless excess pension contributions, reduced earnings growth leading to lower multiples. And then finally, we have a lack of capital appreciation that requires higher distributions in compensation. So the gist is, if you haven't got growth, you have to pay out dividends. And that's how we got into this toxic state where we have a high dividend stock market with very little capital growth. Yeah, you mentioned at the top that the UK does have problems. And I think underpinning almost all those problems is this chronic lack of growth we've had since the financial crisis. Growth just makes everything easier, right? You have more money for corporates to invest, you have more money to spend on public services, and you have more money that people can save for retirement. What we've seen is that UK companies have really backed off investment. If you look at CapEx figures, they're so low compared to some other countries that British stocks, so yeah, they're paying high dividends, but that's kind of a bad thing in the long term because they're not investing for the future and they're being left behind, I would argue. Yeah, if you're not investing in research or developing the next source of profit in the future, then that's going to be a problem. And this is something which US companies are very good at, researching, innovating, and also exploiting that technology once they've developed it with capital that's pretty readily available in the US, not so much here. So it is a kind of self-perpetuating downward spiral, which, which has caused a lot of these problems. But that sounds far too gloomy. I think <laughs> it sounds like it's all over, but I just don't think that's true. I think it will turn around. Did you see that crazy stat I posted on the Slack forum yesterday? No, I don't remember that. I saw Ethan Mollick. He tweeted that the R&D spending of Amazon, so just one US company, is greater than the R&D spending of all companies and government in France. That's astonishing. So Amazon's got an R&D spend of over $70 billion a year, which is just on a different scale, isn't it, to what we're talking about here? Yeah, and they've got an eye to the future, and they are really building a company that's going to be successful for decades to come. And this is another reason why I think the Magnificent Seven have got this very difficult advantage relative to the rest of the US market, but also relative to markets like the UK, where we don't spend as much on research. And if you're talking about one of the reasons for UK underperformance, sector composition surely has to be a big part here. We don't have any big technology companies. Yeah, I mean, it's like the land of no tech. I remember when I first did this, I just had two pie charts. One of them was the UK, MSCI UK on the left. The other pie chart was MSCI Global, MSCI Acqui, they call it. And what really stood out when I did it sector by sector was no tech. I mean, literally almost no tech at all. And that's pretty worrying because that's been the really successful story over the last 20 years. 
and the UK has simply been left behind. And it's not because we don't produce tech, we do. A lot of these innovations, like the internet, for goodness sake, you know, a lot of that came from people who were from the UK. Some of it came from CERN, the particle physics research place in Switzerland. But a lot of that was based on research done by UK researchers. And if you look at AI, DeepMind, which was one of the companies at the forefront of artificial intelligence, was a British company, right? And then Google came in and bought it out in 2014. And now, yeah, it's kind of an American company, part of Alphabet. We seem to be good at getting companies at the early stages of R&D, but then they turn to America for investment when they want to become, you know, a real unicorn. So perhaps it's more a matter of taking ideas and implementing them. That's where the problem is in the UK. And that's something we're not particularly good at. Scaling, once we've got a solution to people's problems. So having the capital available for that, the expertise to do that. But also it's often the people who aren't the technology developers who are the ones who are best suited to scaling it. So you've got to take the boffins, <laughs> drag them away from the uh, CEO's chair and have someone else take over in order to actually exploit the ideas. Yeah, there's a weird trade-off here though, isn't there? Because you don't want to tell companies in the UK that they can't go and take American capital and get bought out for you know a load of money down the line. Because if that was the case, then companies wouldn't start up in Britain, right? If they didn't have that big check <laughs> down the road from you know Microsoft or Google or Apple. But also, you know, we'd rather they listed on the UK Stock Exchange and became a British Google, wouldn't we? We'd love that. It would be amazing if it did happen. And I think the other problem is the UK's approach to failure and success. If we have a successful company, we tend to do it down. And I think that's just a cultural thing. Also, if we have a failure, we treat it as something awful. Whereas in America, you often have someone who's created three startups that didn't work and then created a fourth one that did and learned from the previous experiences. So I think that kind of cultural problem is another thing we've got to overcome. But that comes with success, and I think there will be successes. I think government's aware of the problem. They've put a lot of thought and money behind incentives for R&D and investment. And there's lots of initiatives around startup companies. But I think you know, there's that gap that we mentioned, that when you're beyond a startup, you're being successful, then how do you grow internationally while staying headquartered in the UK with UK capital. That's the gap. So if we say that the UK doesn't really have any tech, at least large tech, what do we have? Like, what is our stock market comprised of? Yeah, so if we just list the top stocks in the FTSE 100, AstraZeneca is top, then we've got Shell, then HSBC, then Unilever, then Rio Tinto, then BP. So lots of commodity producers, oil companies. It's very tied to energy prices, which a lot of people don't realise. The UK actually does pretty well if oil prices rise, but also things like copper and industrial metals, that would be good for the UK. Lots of defensive consumer staples companies like Unilever, Diageo, British American Tobacco, and lots of financials, banks like HSBC, and lots of pharmaceuticals, AstraZeneca, GSK. Hmm. It makes me think that with our concentration in commodities producers and consumer staples, are UK large caps kind of a defensive play then? Is the reason we've not done so well, perhaps partly because we've been in this long bull market for the last decade plus, and you know, that's not the kind of environment that's going to favour our companies? Yeah, I think what we do is just not seen as sexy. I think that's one of the problems. And I think that's not always going to be the case. I think there would be the possibility 
that people think stuff is sexy rather than ideas. So instead of software, you switch to producing things or manufacturing things. I'm not talking about a return to the dark satanic mills of the past. You know, that's, that's very unlikely. But a kind of new, innovative and clean manufacturing process for various things. Yeah, you mentioned clean manufacturing, but then you've got Shell, BP, British American Tobacco. <laughs> we are, you could characterise this as the evil exchange in some ways. But also a value exchange, because a lot of the stuff that we are very good at and where we have the biggest exposure are companies and sectors which are considered value stocks. And of course, the last 20 years is characterised by underperformance of value and outperformance of growth. And growth is something we just don't do. If anything, what we saw in 2022, where stocks globally did really badly, but the UK did okay, is kind of a demonstration of the environment where we might see UK outperformance, right? Do we need bad global times for us to catch up? Well, we need another tech wreck. I mean, that's what we need. <laughs> and I think, yeah, and I think that's possible. You know, I think that something like the overvaluation in the companies which have some kind of exposure to AI, as that narrative starts to wane, there's the possibility that the UK could do better and that value could outperform again, as it has done for over a century before it started underperforming. So perhaps this is just a temporary blip, a 20-year blip, when these kind of things don't do well. The other thing that differentiates the UK versus many of the other developed markets is our extremely high dividends, relatively speaking. And, you know, we've kind of mentioned that's a double-edged sword because it's in some ways an indication that the companies don't have anything better to do with their money than return it to shareholders. Yeah, we couldn't think of anything, so have the cash back, yeah. One of the charts that I was looking at in preparation for this, which I found really interesting, was a comparison of revenue per share generated by US companies versus UK companies. And the line for US companies looks quite pretty. It goes up and to the right, <laughs> like every good graph in finance. Whereas the UK one, it's bumpy, but it's basically flat over the last 20 years. Earnings have been growing because margins have gone up a bit, but fundamentally, our companies are not making more sales. And that can't happen long term. So I think that's the fundamental problem. You're right. I think if revenue's not growing, then your stock prices won't grow either, unless it revalues upwards, and that's not sustainable. Certainly, if you're a domestically focused UK company, it's been hard to grow, right? Because like we say, we've had stagnant growth in the domestic economy. You can't squeeze blood out of a stone. You're right. I mean, if productivity growth has just not been there, which it hasn't really since 2008, 2007, 6, somewhere around there. If you look at real wages right now in the UK, they're roughly where they were then. And so it's a real problem. And I'm not sure how we can fix it. There aren't any quick fixes. But that's definitely one of the sources, certainly for domestic companies, like you say. But one of the things that could fix that as a temporary measure is not to depend on domestic markets. So market UK stuff abroad better in economies which are growing and are very vibrant. And that hopefully could bootstrap us out of this quagmire. I mean, the thing is, as a British person, I am quite instinctively self-depreciating about myself and you know, Britain as a country. But we do do a lot of stuff well, right? If you think about the things where we punch above our weight, the creative industries, for sure, but also early stage R&D, you know, biotech. We have an amazing university system. 
with some of the best universities in the world, lots of intelligent graduates. And we should have really good capital markets. Like we've got massive financial firms. We've got one of the top stock exchanges in the world, even if it's been struggling of late. If we could get all these things to play nicely together, presumably we could get some growth going. So there's a real question of what the UK is good at, and it's not easy to put your finger on it. Banking is something we were good at, now not so much perhaps. But if you actually look at the GDP numbers and dig into them, then there's a category called other business services. (laughs) Miscellaneous services is what we're good at. It's hard to market that, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, services superpower, I think that sounds good, doesn't it? And there was a Substack article by Dan Davies who said, we dominate the world when it comes to doing miscellaneous stuff. Nobody can touch us when it comes to things that don't fit in any other category. Yeah, I remember that article. He compared it, didn't he, to Germany's speciality. Because they say of Germany, they have this Mittelstand of like small manufacturing companies that make the thing that makes the thing inside the thing, (laughs) which kind of does sum up the German economy. It's a patchwork of these companies, and it all feeds together to make cars and industrial machines. But that's the kind of ecosystem you want to foster and create, because, you know, that's going to create an economic powerhouse. So Davies talks about this. He says, this is the British Mittelstand, and I think any industrial strategy for the UK has to take into account the things we're actually good at, rather than what seems whizzy and cool. The UK has an equally significant hinterland of businesses based out of the old rectory somewhere, all based around someone who knows the person who knows the answer to the question. Yeah, we're a knowledge-based economy. That's our thing. But you're right, it's hard to market that or even describe it. It's also the case that it's more difficult to sell services abroad. Like Most of the free trade agreements have much less provision for services sales. So you look at banking, for instance, and after Brexit, the EU didn't grant us the same level of equivalence, I think they called it, which made it harder to sell financial services overseas. And things like TV shows, you know, that's a bit of my background. It's not a completely free market. Like, for example, countries like France have quotas where a certain amount of content on French TV has to be made in France by French producers. And this is common throughout the world. So you can't just go and completely dominate culturally, even if our TV shows are really good. But here I think the UK's language certainly helps because a lot of rich countries speak English. You've got the US, you've got Canada, you've got Australia. Did I miss anyone out? New Zealand. Obviously New Zealand, yeah. But there are some things the government can do. For example, don't piss off the people you're exporting to. That's probably a bad idea. Have infrastructure, which kind of helps. So fast broadband would be nice, especially in Holmer Green, can I just say. And education, the one that everyone doesn't want to talk about because it doesn't have instant benefits. So all of these things, I think, could help. But really, it's a kind of catch-22 because you've got to break into this doom loop somehow to get things started. But the impact on UK capital markets has been severe. So there's a real lack of new companies entering the stock market. If you look at IPOs, increasingly companies are choosing not to list in Britain. And who can blame them, right? You go to America, you get a higher valuation, you make more money for your shareholders. Yeah, I mean, you can literally have twice the money for the same amount of equity you give away. So it's a very difficult decision to make. There probably have to be some incentives to start off. 
in order to start the ball rolling. But there's no question, you've got lower volume. So if you trade in the UK markets, there'll be a smaller volume, lower valuation, and really less interest in the IPO. It's just more exciting if it's listed in New York than in London. Less domestic investors. That's one of the things that makes our market different from other markets. We've mentioned pensions. Like In most countries around the world, their domestic pension schemes are big buyers of domestic equities. Where, you know, we've had the opposite effect going on for 20 years. Now, I'm not saying the government should step in and sort of force everyone to start buying British stocks. I kind of hate that idea, but it has been a factor at play here. And you mentioned the lower volumes for UK stocks. There was an interesting piece from Robin Wigglesworth in the FT called The Atrophying UK Stock Market, which talked about this liquidity problem. So to quote from that article, today there are just 319 UK stocks where the six-month average daily trading volume is $1 million or more, according to SockGen's Andrew Lapthorne. Yeah, Robin makes the point that the UK is actually the only major developed market where the number of liquid stocks has shrunk over the past two decades. And that's not good, is it, when you're talking about attracting foreign investors to buy our stocks? Because a lot of institutional investors have like minimum levels of liquidity and they literally can't go and buy stocks if they don't trade enough each day because the risk is just too high to them. It means they can't exit easily. If you have a low volume, like you say, it becomes expensive to exit a position or enter a position. The bid offer spreads are larger. That really is a problem. But I think this is more of a symptom rather than a fundamental problem, the volume problem. And if things improved in other ways, with productivity, with certain institutional investors investing more in the UK and foreigners investing in the UK, then that would turn around very quickly. So you've talked about it as a symptom. But I guess the big question really is, is the UK a bargain right now? So maybe the first place to start on that question is the valuation metrics. So if we look at forward price to earnings ratio, based on the MSCI indices, the UK is 10.8 as we record this, which is below Germany, which is 11.4. And remember, Germany is having a really tough time at the moment. It's the only G7 country in recession. And its industrial output is shrinking as they're struggling to come off Russian gas supplies. So, you know, being below them as a multiple is quite worrying. And we're a long way below the US, which is 20.3 as a multiple. You know, our valuation is kind of half that of the US. And Japan's somewhere in between, 15.1. So there you go. You compare us with a country in recession, and we're actually at a lower valuation. And just looking at that, it makes no sense to me. And that was one of the reasons why I thought it would be a bargain, you know, the UK right now. I'm not expecting fireworks. I'm just expecting a re-rating upwards to something closer to normality, which better reflects our economic situation, which is just not a lot of growth and inflation coming down. So I think it's not a massively bullish position, but yeah, I think those valuations are just too brutal, too negative. I mean, the danger is always putting too much weight on any one metric, right? The one that caught my eye was the price to book value in the UK is actually below one, I think, versus around 2.5 times for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's shocking. I mean, everyone got excited when Japan was trading below book value, and that proved to be a decent bet last year. Yeah, why are we a value trap? That's not right. But maybe we are a value trap, Robin. Like, if the country was going to be a value trap and in long-term decline, you know, if you had to think around the world, who's the next Italy? 
it could be us, right? We could be that country. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think that's going to happen. I just don't believe it because I think, you know, in terms of creativity and education and the ability to come up with new ideas, we're pretty powerful as a nation. It's just a matter of harnessing that ability. That's looking kind of longer term. Shorter term, I think it's just the case that we've been unduly beaten up, I guess, partly because of Brexit, partly because of what's going on in politics, and some rather unwise comments by some politicians about business, which suggest that we're not business friendly. And just looking back over time to see how we became successful in the first place, it was due to the Royal Navy. It was because we became an outward-looking society. Maybe in a bad way, of course, because of colonialism. (laughs) But, you know, we traded. We became a mercantile nation. And that was really what led to our success. So it was a focus on business, support from the government for that outward-looking stance. And that led to incredible benefits later on. Things we could never have foreseen, like the US, for example. I mean, we're not going back to gunboat diplomacy. Well, look, we wouldn't do it like we did it in the past. Yeah, but I'm saying, you know, if you had to create a kind of recipe for how you become successful, it's an outward-looking way of thinking rather than an inward-looking way of thinking. I'm not going to argue with any of that, but I do want to quickly go back to valuation while we're here. Because some people have said that, sure, the UK looked cheap, but that's largely a compositional effect. We look cheap because we have value stocks and value stocks trade at lower multiples. However, even if you adjust the sectoral composition, the UK still looks cheap. So if you compare just the UK energy sector, for example, versus the US energy sector, ours trades on a forward PE of around six to seven times, whereas the US is around 10 times. If you look at our biotech sector, we trade around 15 times as a multiple, the US is over 20. And in fact, the median discount for UK sectors is around 26% versus the US. And that's research from Schroeder's. And again, if you look at the reason why UK energy companies have been beaten up literally over the last week, and it's a specific part of the UK energy sector, it's battery storage, there was some kind of mistaken legislation which effectively overnight made the whole battery storage solution not viable. And if you look at the share prices of some of these battery storage companies, they've literally fallen off a cliff overnight. In fact, people were talking about it on Slack in our community. If that's the kind of environment in which these companies have to operate, it's kind of like China. (laughs) You're worried about whether it's a good place to do business. One thing I've wondered about, though, is whether the UK is actually undervalued or whether it's more the case that the US is just overvalued. So I mentioned those sectoral compositions and, you know, we look cheap compared to the US, even when you drill down to the company level. That discount more or less goes away when you compare us to European countries. So maybe it's more the fact that Europe as a continent is unloved. We've got aging demographics. We were reliant on Russian energy, which was a mistake. And we've got maybe burdensome regulation compared to some other parts of the world. So maybe the UK is just part of the European continent, which is struggling right now, rather than it being specifically us, which is undervalued. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of the problem. No doubt about it. I think that's certainly true. I mean, just speaking personally, I would be reluctant to overweight the UK because I live in the UK, have property in the UK, I'm tied to UK inflation and political risk. 
Like I already have enough eggs in the UK basket without, you know, doubling down by owning more stock here than is appropriate, I think. Like if I was completely neutral and living on the moon, yeah, maybe I would overweight the UK right now. It does look cheap. So you're saying you're already long? I'm already long. But why not monetize your UK exposure? What do you mean? Well, I mean, it's one thing to live here, but if you actually want to turn that into, into cash, then if you believe in the UK and you buy the stocks, you're turning that belief into, into returns. Yeah, but here's what I'm worried about. Concentration risk. Let's take a scenario where inflation in the UK is stickier than elsewhere and runs high for a long time. That would be bad for my personal finances, obviously. Yeah. But it would also be really bad for the UK stock market because we generate a decent amount of money from the UK market, right? So if inflation's high in the UK, UK stocks will suffer. I have a double risk there if I'm overweighting UK stocks, which I don't want to take. Well, if you look at the FTSE 100, right, large caps, a lot of their revenue comes from abroad. And if that's the case, and we have higher inflation than elsewhere, then you get this effect kicking in where the currency devalues. Any profits you generate abroad get repatriated and get repatriated into more pounds. So that actually acts as a hedge if we do have higher inflation. Would the Bank of England not have to hike rates, though, if we get higher inflation? Yeah, I mean, it, it will mean higher rates for longer, potentially, from the Bank of England. Higher cost of capital for UK firms. Yeah, assuming that you do get this inflation spike lasting a lot longer. But I think, you know, how much longer would it last if we see disinflation elsewhere? And just look at the graphs comparing us to the rest of G7. What it looks like is we're just operating with a lag. So perhaps there are specific reasons why we're taking longer. But it's not the case that we're not coming down at all. We are, and disinflation's really noticeable for the UK. No, I agree with that. My central case is that the UK is just like everywhere else, in Europe at least, and will do the same as everywhere else. But what if I'm wrong? I don't want to take that risk. Yeah, you could be right. You could be right. There could be a specific problem about the UK, which keeps inflation high. But do you think that the valuations that we see right now are justified by that risk? Do you think that risk is likely enough that it warrants a 10 times multiple? No, UK stocks do look cheap, particularly the mid caps and small caps, right? The FTSE 250 valuation looks incredibly cheap compared to its history, I would say. It's trading more than 20% below its long-term average. And I saw a nice stat where if it was to revert to mean, this is the FTSE 250, the mid caps, if that reverted to mean, that would mean 6.8% per year earnings growth, which is the average over the last 20 years. And its CAPE multiple would go up from around 17 times now to 22 times. If you combine those two things, so earnings back on track and CAPE reverting to mean, that would imply the FTSE 250 going up by almost 40% in price. You could be a strategist, Michael. Look, 40%. There you go. That's Michael's forecast. There's <laughs> no forecast. And as I said, <laughs> if I was living on the moon, maybe I would overweight the UK at the moment. But I don't want to do that. See, I've taken even more risk. I've created my own small cap value momentum quality portfolio, which is actually doing pretty well. It's a stock picker's market, right? The UK. <laughs> Isn't that what they say? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. But the trouble with saying, okay, the UK looks cheap is that everyone can see it looks cheap, right? There's a Charlie Munger quote, which I like, which is, when you locate a bargain, you must ask, why me, God? 
why am I the only one who could find this bargain? And that's what I feel about this here, is that we're not the only ones that can look at a price to earnings multiple and go, oh yeah, the UK looks cheap. Yeah, but I guess, you know, if you buy during a crisis, these are the kind of opportunities which takes a little bit of bravery. And I think sometimes people see the opportunity but aren't just willing to take it. Maybe they don't believe it's going to recover. Maybe they just find better opportunities elsewhere. The thing is, it's been cheap for quite a long time now. It would need a catalyst to change the narrative, change the story, get us reverting to a more reasonable multiple. I mean, in the meantime, it seems that private equity is having their day. They're coming in and taking lots of UK companies private, plucking them out of the stock exchange. So towards the end of last year, we saw that with Hotel Chocolat and the restaurant group, you know, that kind of made the press that quite high profile British companies were being bought out and delisted. And in fact, there were 40 deals last year worth more than £100 million each. And the kind of staggering stat is that the bidders, the private equity coming in, they paid an average premium of 50% versus what the company was trading at at the time. So they clearly think the market is cheap. Well, certain parts of the market, that's for sure. But of course, they're very selective. They'll be looking for companies where they see value. And usually that'll be within a particular sector as well. But you're right. It is a vote of confidence. I've heard it said that if we don't buy our stocks, someone else will. Yeah. I mean, the question, though, is the catalyst. Like, what is going to turn this narrative? Maybe a change of government. The current government's been in power for a long time, so maybe they're just bereft of ideas. They certainly haven't turned things around yet. And it does take a fresh set of heads in order to come up with new ideas and a clean slate. So perhaps that could turn things around. Although I'm loath to think that politicians could fix problems rather than create them. Yeah, I don't know if the change of government, if we get one, is going to turn the tide. I mean, they're certainly not being super ambitious with market reforms or investment plans or anything, as I can see. Maybe just the new face could do it, but I don't know. I think it's more that the macro environment would have to change around the world and people would have to start looking to value again. I think it's often really difficult to see what these catalysts are before they happen. And if you look back in history and look at countries that have suddenly become super successful, who could have predicted that Norway would have all of that money from finding all those oil and gas reserves underground? I mean, it wouldn't have been predictable. Now, you can probably tell Michael and I don't agree on everything. We sometimes disagree about the finer points of investing, but that's what makes a community. So if you want to enter into these kind of discussions with other investors and thrash out your own beliefs more clearly, then why not join our community? Just go to pensioncraft.com to find out more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week actually comes from one of our listeners, Andrew. When a company goes private, Are you forced to sell your shares? Well, the short answer is no. What's the longer answer? Well, what you can do is hold on to them. But then once it stops being something which is traded on markets, the liquidity obviously is very different. And you then can sell it, but only to qualified investors. Right. So you'll sort of end up with stock and you're on the phone to Bill Gates saying, come on, (laughs) give me a good price, Bill. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think the key point here is that if it's going to go private, you're probably better off selling the stocks straight away. I mean, let's just walk through the process here. So we own a company. It's listed on, let's say, the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange. A big private company comes in and says, I'm offering 
all the shareholders a 30% premium on the stock price, and they make what's called a tender offer. But once they do have one of these so-called tender offers, then the management can choose to recommend that to their shareholders or not to recommend it. But ultimately, it is up to the individual shareholders whether they accept it or not. And it probably will go down to a vote of shareholders. And I think it depends on the company about what level of agreement you need. Like it might just be a majority or it might be a supermajority. And then if enough shareholders vote to accept the deal, then that company is going private. And there are certain rules in the UK where if some entity acquires more than 30% of the voting rights for a company, they're forced to make a bid for the company. And to go back to the question of are you forced to sell? Generally, no, but you might be, depending on where the company is domiciled and the articles of incorporation of the company. It might be the case that if a buyer acquires a very high level of stock, maybe it's over 90%, something like that, then they can force the remaining holdouts to sell their shares. The thing to remember as well is that usually the tender offer will be at a price which makes it attractive because the bidder will want to create an attractive incentive in order for the shareholders to agree to what they're suggesting. An offer you can't refuse? Yeah. But here's the thing. If we're saying the UK market is undervalued and lots of private equity is coming in and picking off the companies it likes, is there not a case that UK boards and shareholders should be standing up to them more and turning down these offers? Because even if they're a premium to the current price, the current price is artificially low, is what we might be saying. I think you've got to think about why people invest in the first place. And often it's just for return. So really, do they care whether the capital is allocated to that specific company or to another company? I think in most cases, the answer is no, unfortunately. Take the money and run, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. And it's hard to turn it down when someone comes in with a 50% premium on the share price, isn't it? But you can go off and buy another UK company if that's what you really believe in. So that maybe that's the way to think of it. That you can talk up to an investment success and then you can go off and place your capital with another UK company and more of your capital for that matter. I mean, it's an investment strategy, isn't it? To invest in companies you think are going to become takeover targets because you get these quick wins potentially of people coming in and bidding 30 to 50% premiums. Yeah, and that could be another reason why the UK could perform temporarily quite well (laughs) in certain sectors. I mean, certain sectors are attractive, others aren't. But you're right. I mean, there is a takeover strategy, but clearly it depends on the ability to select the stocks which will be taken over, which I'm not convinced that anyone can do. No, it's the kind of strategy which often requires a sort of under-the-table tip-off, isn't it? (laughs) Special knowledge, Yeah. yeah. Which is illegal, by the way. Let me just point that out. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.